It is laudworthy. It is admirable. Those individual contributors who just want to come to work, give it their all, and leave. I, I think that is enormously worthy of the vast majority of people. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, today's episode is very special as we have the executive vice president of Franklin Covey, one of the largest training companies in the world, Scott Miller. Now, he has written the book, Management Mess, and he goes through it, but we also want to hear his story where he worked for Disneyland. He also worked as George W. Bush, and one of the things that um, Scott has one of the top podcasts on leadership, thought leadership around uh, the world, is that we really talk about clarity and how important clarity is. And one of the things, CRG helps people to get clear in their life in all areas as well or better than anybody else out there with our tools and resources. And I just want to encourage you that if you haven't already taken our values preference indicator or completed the e-course, that, that full e-course on a debrief is there for you. And during this time where you have some time, uh, at least when we're recording it, is work on the most important person in your life, and that's you, not from a self-centered point of view, but from a self-honoring point of view, that you come out of the chute clear, and you know what your intentions are, and you know what's important to you, and you know how to say no as well as yes, to those things that motivate you and that are valuable to you. As always, we thank you for being a listener. If you like what we're doing, please pass it on, share it, leave a positive comment uh, or a rating on whatever platform you're listening on. You've been listening to, or you are listening to Secrets of Success with Dr. Ken Keyes. And here's today's guest, Scott Miller. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, we have a very special guest because the individual with us today works with one of the largest professional development firms in the world. I happened to meet the founder in person at ASTD way back in 1990. And this individual is the Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership for Franklin Covey. Welcome, Scott Miller. Ken, thank you for the invitation today. Well, it's always a pleasure to have excellent individuals, executives, people that are in similar space as we are to be able to share encouraging news. And of course, you know, the world has been through a lot of stuff in the, in the past, and we always want to have some encouraging news. So, Scott, one of the things we like to do is to spend a little bit of time getting to know our guests. So, uh, Scott, you know, when we think about you know, where you grew up and some of your history as a family. Uh, what can you tell us about that in your growing up years? Sure. Well, I live in Salt Lake City now with my wife, Stephanie. We have three boys, five, eight, and nine. But I'm actually from Orlando, Florida, or a small suburb outside called Winter Park, Florida. Uh, I was born in 1968 from a kind of upper middle class family in central Florida. And my brother and I were raised in a very stable family, lived and worked there up to about 26, worked for the Disney Development Company. Okay, so let's years. just stop there for a second. So what did you do for Disney and how did that come about? Sure. So, you know, local hometown company, right, was going to college. I actually worked on a 
U.S. presidential campaign back in 1988. That uh, that that duo won the election and went to the White House. And I was 19 years old, so who, I wasn't okay. Exactly, so who was it? Who was it? Yeah, at the time it was Vice President George H. W. Bush and Senator Quayle. They went right. on to win the 1988 election. I spent two years on their campaign from 86 to 88. And once they wow. went to the White House, I was still barely 20 years old. So I was finishing my degree at a local private school called Rollins College. And one of my professors and uh, another acquaintance hooked me up with an internship at the Disney Company, which turned into a full-time job and career for four years. So I actually worked for the Disney Development Company which is the real estate arm of the Walt Disney Company. They, mm. build, they build the hotels, they build the theme parks, they build the cruise ships, and they sell them back, if you will, to their parent company. Well, I worked on the town of Celebration. Many people know that about 25 years ago, right. Disney started building this town that's now home to thousands of people and thousands of homes, and I was one of the first employees of that new town called Celebration, Florida worked there for four mm -hmm. years, and Disney invited me to leave, which is a nice way of saying <laughs> okay. they kicked me so, out. So explain uh, that. What's God, what happened? What did you do? Well, what didn't happen? I mean, here I was, you know, 26 years old, you know, a really competent kind of up-and-coming professional, but I just interpersonally, Ken, was a wreck, right? I mean, I wasn't doing anything illegal or immoral. I just was a jerk and arrogant and self-absorbed and not very humble and and just was kind of not right for the culture. Um, mm. They invited me to leave, which was probably the right thing. I, I learned a ton there. I'm still friends with many of the executives there and went on in the Franklin Covey Company, learned I was available and recruited me. And so therefore, I loved that because I mean, Utah was the opposite of Orlando. No humidity, four seasons, mountains, no billboards, no neon, right? I mean, so for me, it was a paradise best thing that ever happened to me was Disney canning me. How did you come to Salt Lake City or, or to Utah? How does that shift from there to there? Yeah, how did you even big, get on the radar? It was a big change. I mean, this is where the company was headquartered, right? Franklin Covey is headquartered in Salt Lake City. Uh, at the time, I was working for a private company called the Covey Leadership Center. That was Stephen Covey's private boutique leadership company. So I actually so, moved from Orlando to Provo, Utah. So how did you get into that space from developing real estate with yeah. Disney? Yeah, it's a great question. So Disney was building this town called Celebration, and there were five pillars of the town, if I can recall them, technology, education, community, um, healthcare, and like a sense of place, architecture. Well, I was dedicated to the education component. They were trying to build this fantastic school, kind of a public-private partnership. Well, one of the many thought leaders and advisors on the project was the vice president of education for Stephen Covey's company. We were helping to develop some of the curriculum for the Disney School. When I say we, I mean they. So Chuck Farnsworth, who was the vice president at Franklin Covey, then the Covey Leadership Center, took a liking to me and got to know me at Disney. And just coincidentally, one of our Disney University executives left Disney and went to join the Covey Company, and she kind of recruited me out, and Chuck got to know me. So really, I was the product of people that were older and wiser, really believing in me and kind of seeing more in me than I saw myself, and they 
offered me a role, and I packed my bags as a single Catholic boy from Orlando, moving out to Provo, Utah, which is a huge, huge cultural change if you know Provo, Utah. <laughs> of course. The Catholics were the priest and me. That was it. So it was a pretty amazing um, journey culturally, interpersonally, professionally, and here I am still in the company 24 years later. So you, you haven't been given your walking papers yet. Well, maybe a couple of close attempts, but no, I, not at all. Yeah. I mean, I, I started in the front line <laughs> as a salesperson and made it all the way up to the very top as a member of the executive team reporting to the CEO. I was the CMO, the chief marketing officer, for eight years, and now I serve as a member of the executive team really focused on our book publishing, writing, podcasting, radio programs, and really you know, getting our point of view on leadership development out across the world. Mm, cool, cool. Well, thank you for that. Now, Scott, not to kind of uh, miss all of this and get back into the work in your new book, and we'll, co we'll cover that in a second. Tell us about how you got into this presidential campaign at 19. It's a great question. Uh, you know, my, uh, my passion was kind of history, politics, government. Uh, I was, you know, the student body president of my high school, so I was always interested in that. And I was literally sitting in jury duty one day back in 1986. I was 18 years old. And I noticed wow, that jury duty at 18. I know, I know. I had wow. jury duty at 18 years old. And um, it was right in the middle of the Jim and Tammy Faye Baker trial. They were wow. the televangelists. I remember it. Yes, of course. I was sitting in the jury duty, and I opened up the Orlando Sentinel, and it said that the um, George H.W. Bush for President statewide campaign headquarters was going to open up in Orlando. They gave the address. Well, I had volunteered in high school and a little bit in college on a couple of um, Senate campaigns and a couple of um, county commission campaigns, you know, putting out yard signs and, you know, stickering mail and, you know, things that you did back in the 80s, right? Mm. Well, I, just, I just showed up. After jury duty one day, I showed up and I met the staff. They've been open a day or two. And I just started volunteering and literally emptying the garbage cans, getting the staff lunch. Uh, you know, literally stapling campaign signs, entering names into databases. And the next thing I know, I'm working in the office and I, I'm, you know, working on, um, on, on big events and traveling with the candidates and doing advance work for Barbara Bush and Senator Quayle and the White House and then, you know, college outreach. And next thing I know, I'm, you know, literally building stages for presentations and getting out the vote and canvassing and being a state delegate. So I just kind of worked my way up and had a great time, learned a ton, met then the vice president on multiple occasions. Man, what a man of impeccable character and diplomacy and just mm. one of my heroes in life. So well, that's how it started, right? I, I read about it and just took a step. Wow. And that's congratulations on having that kind of experience at that age. I'm sure that was uh, beneficial and very oh, eye-opening. Yeah. yeah, I learned a ton. And it was, I learned a lot right around, uh, I just learned a lot about what kind of people run for office <laughs> and campaign. Those are the days of Michael Dukakis and Pat Robertson and Dick Gephardt and Bob Dole, and they weren't all created equally. I'm a big Bob mm -hmm. Dole fan. I'm a big, obviously, George H.W. Bush fan. These, these, are, these, are, these are heroes in my mind, people that mm, sacrificed cool. their, their life and their well-being a lot for our country. Mm -hmm. Both of them are war heroes. Well, thanks, Scott, for uh, Thank for you for that. asking. 
well, you're welcome. Uh, we like to get to know people on this podcast. <clears throat> it's not always about expertise. It's about the person. So when we think about now you've gone to Utah, uh, did you meet your wife there in, in Utah? I, I didn't. And I love the fact you're asking these questions. No one ever asks these personal questions. You know, I was, let's see, I was 26 when I moved to Utah, single, kind of confirmed bachelor, lived here for four or five years. I did a stint in our London office. Franklin Covey has offices in almost every country around the world where it's legal. So I did a year stint in the UK, came back to Utah for a year or two, and then I was transferred out to Chicago where I lived for six years as the general manager of our central region office for Franklin Covey in Chicago, uh, managing sales in about 15 states. And on my, in my last year of living there, where I was now, gosh, almost 39, I met this girl in the gym, and we went on a date, and I guess you'd say early on fell in love. I moved back to Utah, and then she followed me about a year later. We got married and then had three boys in five years. We've been married now for about 11 years. I think it's 11 years, and we have a five-year-old, an eight-year-old, and nine-year-old son. We have three sons. Cool. Got to love it. Now, I thought I was older getting married at 32, but you, you beat my record. Yeah, I was 41. I got married at 41. My wife was about 13 years younger than me. So there was a big generation difference in the beginning. Now it's not, but um, yeah, it was a big difference. Now, uh, since we're on a global podcast and everybody on the planet can listen to this, um, we have a family member dating somebody who is much older at the moment. I can't say who it is. How's this working out for you? Oh, I think it's great. I think early on, people outside of our, you know, friends and family kind of wonder what's going on there. Because, you know, 13 years, especially like 12 and a half or something, was a lot of years. Uh, I think I was focused on 401k and she was focused on the gym, right? So <laughs> over the years, the difference has become quite unnoticeable. I probably am a little less focused now on what people think about me. I'm 50, almost two, and she, my wife is 39. She's, you know, most people still care what people think about you in your 30s. Mm. You hit your late 40s and 50s, and you tend to care less about external stuff and more about, you know, mm. internal stuff. So uh, it's been a good ride. So what advice would you have to individuals out there, couples who have this age difference that would encourage them? You didn't know you were going to get asked this question, and nor did I know I was going to oh, ask Oh, yeah. It, but no, I'm, I'm looking but what would you say to people where you have this kind of situation? Just tr you know, just transparency, right? Vulnerability is talk openly about your fears, your weaknesses, your passions, your dreams. Explain mm. to each other your own journey. Explain why you believe certain things, and be prepared to challenge them. I mean, I have deeply embedded belief systems and mindsets. So do you. So does my wife. My wife has, you know, no context for I Love Lucy, the Jeffersons, All in the Family, right? These are these are programs that are I Dream of Jeannie. These are programs mm -hmm. we were raised on in my generation. She was raised by Saved by the Bell, right, and other groups. Mm -hmm. I use TV icons. But I think for us, it was just about explaining why we believe certain things to be true and being willing to challenge them. And, you know, and because you and your spouse or your partner have different values, which you will, doesn't make mm -hmm. one of you right or wrong. doesn't make one of you smart or dumb. They're just, they're, you know, people of different generations absolutely have different values. Mm. When my wife met me, most of my friends were in their 40s and 50s because I always tended to friend up. It's a phrase that I've coined. 
friending up people who are smarter and, and more educated and more cultured and more traveled and uh, more experienced than me. So when my wife, who was in her early 20s, was dating a guy in his late 30s, most of my friends were in their 40s and 50s. Um, so for her, it was a huge generational change now to be going to dinner parties and on vacations in Europe with people in their 50s and 60s who are now some of her best friends. Mm. So I think for us it was just uh, recognizing that we had lots of differences and we just kind of talked through why they were different and found a middle ground. Cool. Cool. Well, congratulations on that, uh, Scott. Oh, it's rocky, Ken. It's rocky, <laughs> especially in today's society, right, where you're quarantining and, you're, and you're, you're, your kids are out of school. So, I mean, it doesn't say it's all bliss. Marriage is tough, as you probably are Well, I'm 20, 26 years in, and uh, I wow. have some stories that I have shared where it's not always gone perfectly, and both of us are in the thought leadership space, so there you go. Uh, just you. because you're in it doesn't mean that you're perfect, for sure. Of course. So, yeah, Dr. Covey always said... Yeah, Dr. Covey always said, to know but not to do is not to know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, one of the things that you mentioned sort of in this, which really is a sidebar to go towards as we transition to your management book, is you said to not worry about what other people think. So what would you say to listeners? And, you know, we really want to serve the Secrets of Success listeners here and, and your story is encouraging, and I appreciate that, is what have you learned about that as far as, yes, we want to have advisors, we'd want to have people who mentor us, but what about this comment of not worrying about what other people think? How, how, do, how do we bring that in context of life and management? Yeah, it says easy, does hard, right? I think what I've learned is I still care what people think about me, but less people. Like, I've picked the people in my life that are very important and influential whose, you know, whose respect I crave. And it's not everyone I meet. I mean, you know, it's not everyone on LinkedIn, everyone on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. I, I'm very thoughtful and more deliberate. You know, I care what my parents think to some extent, not to every mm -hmm. extent. I care what my in-laws think about me, not to every extent. Our, my CEO you know, some executive friends I have. I care most what my wife thinks about me, my three boys, because I'm their biggest, you know, model in life. Mm -hmm. So I have narrowed down, you know, uh, as you know, as you've developed some, you know, influence and in, in celebrity or, um, you know, a public profile like I have, uh, public profile, not celebrity, people troll me on the internet, you know, and try to take me down. And there's blogs dedicated to my hair, there's, you know, blogs dedicated to my glasses. To Man, to be so uh, influential that people would actually spend the time to talk about your hair. <laughs> Isn't that stupid? Congratulations <laughs> that you would actually stupid? suck somebody's time right <laughs> out of their head to do it. I don't pay attention to the vitriol. I have a group of carefully curated colleagues. There was a lot of C's around me that I do care about their feedback. Mm. I, I, I listen carefully to their assessment of where I should grow or what I should do differently. But that doesn't mean I'm cavalier. It doesn't mm. mean that I you know, am, am irresponsible with my words, but I do deliberately care about what fewer people think about me. I think that's grown as I – there's kind of an inverse correlation in my self-confidence and my value and how many people – I solicit feedback from or value their judgment of me on. 
Absolutely. Well, one of the things I state uh, in our programs, or if I'm a guest, uh, Scott, is that uh, in today's social media world, every single person has an opinion. Very few people have wisdom. So as part of that process, as you're just filtering through, and this is for the listeners too, is, you know, who do I really want to listen to? And everything else is noise. Now, I've been fortunate enough to be mentored under Marshall Goldsmith. And one of the things that we really talked about when we were together in New York a couple of years ago is just that uh, many people like to amuse themselves in life. So <laughs> I think this blog on your hair, is that's an amusement. That's not really, that's not really contribution. Ken, I read recently, and probably people have heard this that are your listeners, another person's opinion of you is not your business. Exactly. <laughs> and I yeah. think it, you know, that, that can take a little bit harsh, but yeah, it, my wife will read something vitriolic about me online and it'll just, it'll, you know, crush her. And I'll read it and like, whatever, who cares? Move on. Next. Uh, well, I, I did learn something. In, can can, know, can um, I share one thought with you on that? Pardon me? Sure. Can I share one thought? I learned something really vi valuable that, I, that might help your listeners, and that is, too often we think that we should have thick skin, and there's a reason for that, right? But I learned from Viola Davis that the problem with thick skin is nothing gets in, but then nothing gets out. And it's better to have translucent and transparent skin. Mm. Stuff comes out. That's a good metaphor. I spent much of my 20s and 30s, I think, with a brand of thick skin. And I started to realize now, no, wrong strategy. Have thin skin, meaning translucent, transparent skin. Nothing stays in, but stuff can also leave as well. It's a good metaphor. Mm, excellent, excellent. I appreciate that. So, Scott, you have now written a new book. A couple and books, And yeah. it's called The Management Mess. Uh, give us a little background about how this book came about. Thank you. So I've authored two books now. The most recent one is uh, a Wall Street Journal bestseller called Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, The Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team. I co-opted that book. My first book was Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow. And I really wrote that book on the back of a 30-year career in the leadership business. Uh, you know, I, I host a podcast like you where I interview authors and, and, and thought leaders every week. And so I've read literally... Okay, so at the uh, peril of uh, self-promotion, which you should be able to do, what is the uh, podcast so that people can look it up? Thank you. The podcast is called On Leadership with Scott Miller. It is now the world's largest subscribed to podcast on the topic of leadership, uh, sponsored by Franklin Covey. And it's actually a video, a video interview series that also gets pushed out two podcasts. You can just Google On Leadership with Scott Miller. And as a result of hosting that podcast, you know, like you, I read a lot of books because I want to respect my, my, uh, my guest. And so I read at least one, if not two full books a week, not to mention the, the pleasure books. So after, you know, after 30 years of being in this business, you know, I've read hundreds and hundreds of leadership books. And to answer your question, Ken, a lot of them have changed my life. I recommend them all day long. Many of them were very aspirational. They were unrelatable, written by a you know, Fortune 10 CEO, right? Or an, a professor or an academician that were, they were wise, but I just couldn't find myself in them. And most mm. of them were not relatable. So I wanted to write a different kind of leadership book, one that was brutal and honest and real and raw and relatable, that talked about 
my belief, which is leadership is hard. It's not for everyone. Not everyone should be a leader of people. That too mm. often people are lured into leadership roles, not led in. Leadership is messy, unrelenting. It's often unrewarding. And by the way, I love the, I love the word lured. <laughs> oh, it's so true. I mean, think about that, right? I mean, I think too often the industry, the leadership industry, perpetuates this myth that everyone should be a leader of people. It's not true. I, I think inherently people can lead a project or lead their 401k or lead their own life, but I don't think everyone should be a leader of people. In fact, I, I use the word lure because too often that is also perpetuated in organizations, right? In order to get promoted, to get a raise, mm. you have to be a leader of people. And that's the way it is most of the tech sector. You have to lead a team of at least eight or ten in order to earn a promotion. I think it's a horrible idea because not everyone should be a leader of people. Just like everyone Scott, should be. Finally, somebody that agrees with me. <laughs> I, I, I passionately agree with you, right? Not everybody should be an anesthesiologist. Not everybody should be an airline pilot. Most of which, not me. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, Ken, that I should have been a leader of people. The problem is in organizations, we tend to promote independent producers that are stars, right? The most mm -hmm. efficient dental hygienist or the most creative, creative digital designer or the top producing salesperson. I mean, think about that, right? I was the top producing salesperson in my division. So naturally, I'm promoted. But think about the skills of a great sales producer. These are people that usually have a lot of confidence, a lot of swagger, a little bit of arrogance. They like to compete. They want to see their name on the top of the scoreboard. They want to win, beat out their colleagues. They want to earn the biggest bonus, the most commission. It doesn't mean they're not collaborative, but they're very competitive. They also like the spotlight, the attention, the fame, the awards. This is true. My two top strengths with Gallup Strength Finder, Ken, are competition and significance. Those are good strengths to have as a salesperson. Those are horrible strengths to have as a sales leader. So my, the premise of the book is that, you know, we've all got a mess going on in our lives. And the, the more you're willing to own your mess as a leader, as a parent, as a spouse, as a roommate, just own your mess. If you're willing to own your mess, then you make it safe for others to own theirs. Because where we learn the most is in our messes, not in our successes. And the book hit a chord. I think it struck a chord with people realizing, oh, you can also be an executive vice president of a leadership company, of a public leadership company, and still have messes. And I share 30 of them in the hopes that others would learn from my mistakes and maybe walk around the pothole versus mm. falling in like I did. I just want to step back for a moment, and thanks, Scott. I appreciate your articulateness. I'm going to invent that word as a dyslexic guy. <laughs> is uh, In my book, The Quest for Purpose, I talk about people think that ambition is always about being upwardly mobile. And my encouragement to the listeners is that's not true. I proved in my MBA research way back that job satisfaction decreased as people were promoted because they just um, blindly accepted the increase in pay. Or I'll give you an example. We used to be the primary consultants to an auto industry, Fortune 10 company, and 
one of the individuals there said, you know what, if it wasn't uh, for people, I'd love my job. I says, what do you do? He says, well, I'm the service manager in charge of our department. I says, well, it's everything to do with people, technicians, service advisors, clients. But he was a technician that had been promoted over the years, and he hated people. I said, what are you doing? They said, well, this is the best paid job. Mm-hmm. So I think it gets pretty shallow for people, and now they're not going to be this fulfillment. So what would you say to people when you come under this pressure for promotions that really don't honor your purpose, your call, your, uh, your gifting, your talents, your strengths, your personality, whatever it is. What would you say to people out there, both in a leadership role to try and promote somebody or somebody who is kind of being forced to consider this? Well, first, I think it's to quote you. You have to know your purpose. You have to know your professional values. You have to uncover or discover or create what your professional you know, contribution is going to be. So first you have to know that because if you don't, then you're just kind of you know, blindly following where others are taking you. Be more deliberate about your career. Can mm-hmm. you align your avocation with your vocation? Not all of us can. Can, can you bring your passions into an organization that you know, values and wants to pay for them? That, that first is that, right? Getting grounded in your own professional values. What role does your career play in your life? For many of us, it is our identity. For Mm. most single people, our career, our paycheck, our title, it is our self-worth. It's our self-esteem. Our self-confidence, you know, lives and dies on it. I'm not saying that's good or bad. No judgment there. But but Mm -hmm. do some introspection on what role does your career play in your identity. Just be honest with yourself. Don't shame yourself. And then once you kind of have a grasp around that, then you can figure out, so what's my trajectory? You know, perhaps your professional value is like earning a vice president title. Perhaps it's hitting six figures or seven figures. No no shame, no judgment. Your values are your own. Mm -hmm. Let no one else um, shame you on them. But I think the clearer you get on your values and to quote you on your kind of professional mission, then you can make better decisions on what promotions you do or don't take. No, no one can shame you if you're in alignment with your values. Though they'll, they'll try and there'll be professional pressure. You might be working in the wrong organization. I, mm-hmm. I think it is more than just fine. It is laudworthy. It is admirable. Those individual contributors who just want to come to work, give it their all, and leave. I, I, I think that is enormously worthy of the vast majority of people. Scott, people thank goodness go- there's a few people who actually feel that way. Oh, I, oh, <laughs> I be a little bit of chaos without it. Can I, can I, well, it's true, though, but, you know, here's, I think here's the problem, Ken, is the problem is I don't think permission has been given to people, especially in you know, the Western Hemisphere, to be comfortable with that. Mm. Because there's so much pressure on your resume and your LinkedIn and your upward movement, like you've said, and earn more money. You know, a, a wise friend of mine once said to me, you'll never have enough until you've defined how much is enough. Me included, right? I mean, I, I, I want to have a nicer car and better vacations and better for my boys and larger homes and nicer clothes and all of that. And so I'm on this, on this, on this treadmill that I kind of can't get off. Therefore, I take jobs and I take moves 
necessarily aren't the best for me, but they're, they're, they're the best solution to solve this insatiable need in my life. And, I, and as I'm 50 now, I'm much more cognizant. I don't want to be the CEO of a public company. I used to think I did. Oh, mm. hell to the no. I do not want to be the CEO of any company. Too much pressure. Not, not worth it for me. So I, I think people should be really thoughtful and give yourself permission not to be shamed by anybody else. Because here's what happens. People get lured into a leadership role. They get into it thinking that, you know, I'll try this. You know, with more pay, better title, better office, more prestige. It's a stepping stone. And then they get into a leadership role of people and they realize, oh, crap. This is not what I thought it was about. This is about having super high courage mm -hmm. conversations. This is about talking straight. This is about declaring your intent. This is about, some people call it adult babysitting. This is about discussing the undiscussables, firing Agree people. Agreeable on the adult babysitting. Yeah, right? I mean, it's insulting to some, but I mean, a lot of that, there's some true in, truth in that. And then they get into this and realize, oh my gosh, I haven't slept in three weeks because my stomach's in a knot. I hate this job. And then they quit. And now the organization has lost not just their leadership pipeline, but they lost their star individual performer. Because no one, rarely do you step back from a leadership role back into your previous role. That's just humiliating. Now, some mm -hmm. people have the self-esteem, the self-confidence to do that, but not most of us. I don't. I don't have the self-confidence to demote myself. i got to go to some other company. So that, I've learned a lot of lessons around that. Be super careful as a leader who you are luring into a leadership role. Do yourself, do your company, do your employees, do that person the service of sitting them down and talking honestly, brutally, transparently around what this role is going to require. The types of conversations you're going to have to have. The type of time and energy, physical, emotional, mental, that it will take to be a leader of people. Paint it clearly. If the person's up for it, bring them on. And while you're at it, make sure you then explain to them when you promote them which skills got them promoted and which skills they don't have yet that they're going to need to acquire. Because mm. I think too often when people are promoted, they take those same skills as an individual producer and they try to turn them into leadership skills and they don't work. So set your newest hire, your newest promotion down and say, hey, Ken, here are eight things you do really well as the sales producer in our pharma division. These eight things you do really well. Hey, Ken, five of these you literally have to stop doing tomorrow. And by the way, Ken, here's seven new skills that you don't actually have yet. That's okay. Mm -hmm. But here's seven new skills that you're going to need to learn, like in the next week or two or month or quarter, in order. If someone had told me that, I would have been a better leader early on because I just thought my job was to turn everybody into my clone, when in fact a leader's job is to get work done with and through other people. And that requires a level of patience, humility, get to coach, get to transfer the spotlight off of you onto other people. You have to innately desire and take satisfaction in building people up 
perhaps at a level where they eclipse you in compensation, in fame, in accolades. You have to now be, you have to be comfortable finding your success in the success mm -hmm. of others. And not everyone is there, and that's okay. Not every, I, I don't think Roger Federer, for example, I don't think he takes great pride in finding success in Nadal. I think they're cordial. I think they're friends. But this is, you know, they're, they're not on the same Davis Cup team, right? They're, they, they're competitors. I think it is fine for you not to take your validation always in the success of others. Unless you are a leader of people, and then you absolutely must find mm -hmm. probably your greatest validation in watching people eclipse you in every area of your career. Well, we think about it. And I talked way too much there, sorry. No, no, and you're passionate, you have your own podcast, you're articulate, and so that's completely fine. You know, when we think about, this is true in so many industries. When, uh, my partner, we've written a book called Deliberate Leadership, and so my partner works, uh, Dr. Mitch Javidi, works in law enforcement, and says so the challenge there is most officers who get promoted, corporal, sergeant, lieutenant, is that uh, they don't get training on leadership until three to eight years after they get promoted. And similar to you is I was a top sales performer, but I really never wanted to be a sales manager. So, because that's a whole different skill set. I mean, even Marshall's book, Goldsmith's book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, really talks about some of those things. Now, we have about, I'd say, eight, 10 minutes left, Scott. What would be a couple other tidbits, words of wisdom that are in your books to really help people to realize their potential in life, both from a leadership point of view and a personal success point of view, what would be some things beyond what you've already shared yeah. that would be valuable to the audience today? You know, Ken, to build on your previous comment, uh, Harvard Business Review published a report about a year ago that said the average age someone is promoted into their first management position is age 30. And the average age the first leader receives their first formal leadership training, age 42. The average is 12 years wow. of being a formal leader without wow. the proper training. That's from HBR. Um, so to answer your question, I think whenever I speak around the nation, which is frequently giving keynotes and such, I'm always asked the question, what did I learn most from Dr. Stephen R. Covey, the author of the seminal book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, sold 40 million copies. This is its 30th year anniversary this year. Dr. Covey taught me something profound, and I write about it in my book, Management Mess. He wrote the difference between being efficient and being effective. It never ceases to amaze me the number of people who call his book The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, or The Seven Habits of Highly Efficient People. He was very deliberate in this. These are the seven habits of highly effective people. And one of the biggest lessons I learned in this company in 30 years is the difference between being efficient and being effective. You probably can tell I'm a very efficient person. I like to make lists. I'm very productive. I get up at 3 in the morning. I write my column for Inc. Magazine. I do my, my books. I do my podcasts. And then I jump into my day job. You know, I'm a go, go, go kind of guy. On a Saturday morning, you know, I'm mowing and raking my lawn at 7 in the morning, car washed by 8, ready for tennis by 9. You're that neighbor with the lawnmower going at 7? I am. Not before 8. Not before 8. Not before 8. Okay. Yeah, it's going at 8 o'clock. Not on Sundays. On Saturday, you're right. <laughs> it's worked very well for me in most areas of my life, Ken, 
this efficiency, right? It's, I've been a very productive person. The problem is, like most people who suffer with this, I use that same level of efficiency in my relationships. And you cannot be efficient with people. You can only be effective with people. So I have had to conquer when to be efficient, when to have an efficient mindset, and when to be effective, when to have an effectiveness mindset. It, it, it's not like don't be efficient and only be effective. No, there's lots of times to be efficient, right? Taking the mm -hmm. garbage out, sending some texts, perhaps some meetings, texts. You know, there, there is a time when efficiency makes sense. But in relationships, which, by the way, relationships have supplanted people as every organization's most valuable asset. That's bunk. People are not a company's most valuable asset. It is the relationships between people in an organization that is your ultimate competitive advantage. Because if, you know, Ken can be a black belt Six Sigma and Scott can be a Rhodes Scholar, but if Ken and Scott can't get along, can't compliment each other, can't forgive, can't pre-forgive each other, then we don't, then the company doesn't need us. So this idea of making time for relationships. When someone comes into your office, close your laptop, turn over your phone, hell, turn off your phone, take off your glasses and check in. I think a lot of successful people in life got there because they ran with their strengths and they were hardworking and productive and moving on and perpetual motion. And that's me. And as I have tried to move that same skill into my friendships, my marriage, my workplace relationships, they implode because, to quote Dr. Covey, with people, slow is fast. Fast is slow. You cannot be efficient in relationships. Can I share one more? Absolutely. I love it. And just to support you in that is a lot of times – you know, we, we have this sort of ADHD distracted society. Sure. And so we actually yeah. have to be disciplined to turn off all the other noise to actually give you full attention. It's, it's very true. Everyone has attention deficit. Every one of this. I, I didn't like the term ADHD. I, I don't think it's a disorder. I'm, I'm not a clinician. I'm not a doctor or a psychologist. Mm -hmm. But everyone has an attention deficit now. All of us are doing the work of two or three people. Some of us have two or three jobs to support our family. The, 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 the barrage of information and stimulus coming at us is incomprehensible. And it's only, only going to compound. There aren't going to mm -hmm. be less Netflix options next month, right? There, there's more coming at us. And that's a leadership competency, really, is discernment and decision-making. Mm -hmm. you know, to, to another point, one of our founders said something I think is prophetic. He said, nearly all, if not all conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. Let me repeat that. Nearly all, if not all conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. It's so true. Mm. In your relationships, in your professional life, in your personal life. How often is because you wanted something to happen and they didn't give it to you, or you thought this would happen, and they didn't think the same, or this was in your mind, 
but it wasn't clear in their mind, right? If you want to minimize conflict, minimize the messes in your life, you have to move outside your comfort zone and declare your intent. That, that's one of the 30 challenges in the book. Challenge four, declare your intent. I, I really encourage people to use that phrase in a conversation. Hey, Ken, my intent is to help you land your project on time. I do not intend to hold you up. There are five questions I have that I need to get answered, and as soon as I have those five answered, I will be your biggest champion on helping you land your project. So I declared my intent. My intent mm -hmm. is not to stall you or to smoke you out or to, you know, slow you down. Because, you know, absent facts, people make stuff up. All and the time. Are, right. And when <laughs> people are pers personal relationships even uh, of, more so. Of course, right? And when people are suspicious about your motive, they will ascribe intent to you. So nobody ascribes intent to me because I'm very clear on declaring my intent. We all have motives. We all have agendas. Ken, we all have hidden agendas. It doesn't mean they're bad or, or mm -hmm. sinister, but the more you are willing to declare your intent up front, whether it be about Thanksgiving dinner or the expectation for what time and why you're going to arrive at temple or the church for Christmas or who's going to host what for the block party, right? Or who's going to be involved in which part of the product launch. Move outside of your comfort zone. Clarify what's in your head with other people. And go so far as to say, hey, can I ask you a favor? Could you repeat it back to me just so that I'm clear that we think the same thing? Because you might even have a better idea and what I had, and I just want to kind of hear your perspective on it. I do that all the time at the end of a meeting. I'll mm. pick someone and say, hey, Tom, can I ask you a favor? Can you just, can you repeat back to me what I said about this um, social media project? And invariably, they'll get four of the five points accurate. Accurate meaning what I as the leader think should happen. And when they get the fourth or the fifth one differently, I'll then say, okay, so is that what I said? Is that what you heard? Is that what I meant? Is that your interpretation? Is that what you think we should do versus what I said we should do? Because I'm open to that. That's a better idea. I I'm passionate about this because I think so much <coughs> team conflict, so much interpersonal marital conflict can be lessened when you're mm -hmm. willing to be vulnerable and take the extra effort to move outside of your comfort zone. And sometimes it takes you as a leader discussing undiscussables, right? I've had a conversation with people about their tardiness, about their body odor, about the way they dress. But I declare my intent. Hey, Tim, I've called you in today because my intent is to help you create a great career here at the Franklin Covey Company. And I'm noticing that you're, you're behaving in meetings a certain way that I don't think you recognize. And I think if you were to be better uh, or more aware of them, you could really have an amazing brand here. And if you don't get your hands around them, it, it could end up in you being exited. So well, one, I, one of the things, uh, Scott, that we teach is that the sin of omission applies to leaders too. So oh, difficult conversations, nobody wants to do them. I don't know anybody I've met says, oh, I can't wait to have difficult conversations. But see, like you said, uh, I still need to have them. So the sin of omission leads into that yeah. as well. Yeah. Can you yeah. believe, Scott, that our time is nearly up already? 
And uh, so I appreciate that. But before we get into sort of the final uh, comments here, is how can people find out about you? Where can they get your book? Uh, mention your podcast again, please. Sure. So uh, you can follow me on LinkedIn, on Instagram, Facebook. Just you know, Google Scott Miller, Franklin Covey. Um, you'll find me on every social platform. The books, of course, are for sale on every you know every uh, digital or physical bookstore. Management Mass to Leadership Success on Amazon. Or the second book, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager. It's in every bookstore and on every book platform. Mm. Well, thank you, Scott, for being with us. What would be your final piece of wisdom in uh, 15 seconds or less for, for our listeners, for them just yeah. really to take action on and, and move forward with? I think, I think vulnerability and humility is a new leadership competency. And the more vulnerable that you can be, the more you'll own your mess, others can own theirs. Dr. Covey said, humble leaders are more concerned with what is right than being right. Next mm. time you're in a conversation, ask yourself, do you need to be right or are you searching to do what is right? Mm. Mm. Well, Scott, stay with us, but thank you very much for being on the, on the show. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Well, Secrets of Success listeners, you've been listening to Scott Miller. Executive VP at Franklin Covey. You know, go get his book, Management Mess, and listen and look at, as far as our own vulnerabilities, what are the things we need to kind of expose ourselves to to go to the next level? So take that to the next step. Now, first of all, thank you for giving us your most valuable commodity, your time, sharing it with us. If you like what we're doing, please pass it on, let other people know, leave a positive comment on whatever platform you're listening on. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keith. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.